This is the word of the Lord. Look carefully then how you walk, not as unwise, but as wise, making the best use of the time, because the days are evil. Therefore, do not be foolish, but understand what the will of the Lord is. The grass withers, and the flower fades, but the word of our God endures forever. Amen. Please be seated. For some of you, you may may remember, maybe some of you might want to forget, um, a movie that John Travolta starred in a long time ago called Saturday Night Fever. And uh, if you remember one of the songs, for some of you, maybe a long time ago, one of the songs they had in there was Jive Talking, and he did kind of some jive walking in that movie as well. One of the things I want to do is not so much dwell on that movie, but the whole premise of jive talking and that whole image of that walking is at the end of the movie, it actually has a pretty good ending from, from a certain perspective, because what he begins to see is, is that all this stuff he's done has not gotten him what he was trying to get. He kind of realizes all these things he pursued were not really wise, not really prudent, not really helpful. And so what we want to look at, and that's kind of what was running through my mind when I, when I basically came with the title Wise Walking, is a sense of almost a contrast to that type of lifestyle, of that type of, of thinking, of that type of mentality. Now, keep in mind, last week, there are two foolish ways. But Paul clearly has in mind here, and what he's contrasting very clearly is, is that these Gentiles, these people who at one time were unbelievers, have now been brought out of darkness, and not only brought out of darkness, but they who once were darkness have now been made light in Christ. Not only has that happened to them, but they also have experienced the love of the great lover of us, and that is none other than God the Father, God the Spirit, and God the Son. And all this has taken place, Paul has told us, because of Christ. All of the realities that these people are being called into to walk wisely, to consider carefully, the whole reason why Paul is telling them to do this is based on the reality that they have been brought into light, that they who did not know love have been made to know love, that they who once were foolish and condemned have now been shown and demonstrated to be right and holy and pleasing to the Lord. And Paul is saying, let's walk wisely in that way. Now, if we can kind of begin to think about that and we begin to see these things going on, then what I want us to do then is to remember, with that in mind, the heart. And one of the things Paul is going after here, he's not just trying to inform our minds. He's not just trying to shore up our emotions. He's not just trying to say, okay, let's get a double portion of determined will. Paul really is after the heart. And what I want you to think about when you think about the biblical heart is this. The heart is almost, in one sense, the presuppositions or the grid that you operate as you think, as you feel, and as you do. It's almost what lies behind. Why do you do that? Why do you feel that way? Why do you think like that? That's the heart. And what Scripture is always after is the heart. It's not just after your will. It's not just after your emotions. It's not just after your thinking. What ultimately God wants is all that related to the heart. 
how you think, why you think that way, why you feel that way. So if we can begin to think about those things, then we can start to ask ourselves some of these questions. And here's the first question I want us to look at in this passage this morning. What is the wisdom Paul would like us to know? What is it? Because Scripture's chock full of wisdom, so what is it that Paul is thinking about when he's talking about wisdom, walk wisely, what does he have in mind? Well, I want us to look back at some of the passages we've already looked at in Ephesians, so we start to see that Paul's been preparing us for this passage from the very beginning of Ephesians. If you turn back with me to Ephesians chapter 1, I want us to look at verse beginning in verse 7. Look at what Paul says there. He says, In Him we have redemption through His blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses according to the riches of His grace, which He lavished upon us. In what? In all wisdom and insight, making known to us the mystery of His will according to His purpose, which He set forth in Christ as a plan for the fullness of time to unite all things in Him, things in heaven, and things on earth. So here's the point that Paul's saying is wisdom and insight, is that God has sent a Savior, Jesus Christ, into the world to redeem us by His blood, and that everything that matters is summed up in Christ. Everything that has lasting value ultimately finds its completion, its resting point, its centrality in Christ. So Paul's saying, if you want to understand wisdom, this is where wisdom starts. It's understanding what God has done to redeem sinners. That He actually has come to save people. And that this is wisdom to understand that. Now sometimes we tend to look at that and think, well that's good information, it's good to know, we have to know that in order to be saved. But Paul's saying, no, if you would walk wisely in the world, you have to have that be the root of how you process everything else that's going on around you. It has to invade and be in your presuppositions. Now you might say, okay Dennis, maybe. Well let's turn to chapter 1, verses 16, and we're going to read a little bit more there and see what Paul's saying some more about wisdom. He says this, he says, I do not cease to give thanks for you, remembering you in my prayer. So here's what's involved in Paul's praying. That the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of glory, may give you a spirit of wisdom and of revelation in the knowledge of Him. So that what? So that having the eyes of your hearts enlightened, that you may know what is the hope to which He has called you, what are the riches of His glorious inheritance in the saints, and what is the immeasurable greatness of His power towards us who believe according to the working of His great might that He worked in Christ when He raised Him from the dead and seated Him at His right hand in the heavenly places. So wisdom was given so that we would know if we have Christ... We have a future, we have resources, and we have power. Now, lest you think this is some brand new thing, for those of you that know Jeremiah 29, 11 by heart, what does it tell us there? I know the plans I have for you, declares the Lord, plans for your welfare and not for your harm, to give you a future and a hope. All the way through Scripture, what we're seeing is, is that if you don't understand the ebb and flow of redemption to the glory of God, you're missing the base presupposition upon which all of Scripture is flowing. All of Scripture is heading in that flow. 
that God would redeem for Himself a people for His own possession who would be zealous for good works that they, he might, His glory might fill the earth. This is the theme of the Scriptures. It rolls all the way through it. And Paul says if you would be wise and you would walk wise and you would live wise, this must be rooted deeply. It must transform and transcend all other thinking that you have. This must be the root. This must be the thing that you focus your attention on. Now the third thing, the third place, excuse me, where Paul talks about wisdom in this epistle is in chapter 3 verses 8 through 10 and I want to go back there and actually I'm going to begin in verse 7 if you look there at chapter 3 and this is what he says of this gospel I was made a minister according to the gift of God's grace which was given me by the working of his power so there he's linked the truth of the gospel the person and work of Jesus Christ all that Christ has done all that Christ is linked with power there it is, again, working out. And here's what that has. To me, though I am the very least of all the saints, this grace was given to preach to the Gentiles the unsearchable riches of Christ. See, Paul's saying, this is what it was given to me. Not to talk about a whole lot of other things, but to talk about how Christ, the fulcrum of all history, to speak of Him, and how He is this great reality. This is what, And to bring to light, in verse 9, for everyone what is the plan of the mystery hidden for ages in God who created all things, so that through the church the manifold wisdom of God might now be made known to the rulers and authorities in the heavenly places. So what Paul is saying is that the church is the place where God has deposited and displayed the reality of redemption, the reality of this being done to the praise of His glorious praise. Now, I want you to get all this because you need to understand this so that we understand when Paul starts to say, be careful how you walk, not as a fool, but as a wise person, we need to understand what wisdom really looks like. Because lots of times you have people that are really astute in how the world operates, and they are really helpful, and they do have a sense of a worldly wisdom. I have men in my life to this day who, if I'm trying to figure out if someone's scanning me on insurance, one of them is not a believer. But boy, he sure knows how the system works. And if I really want to know how the system's working, I'll have some to call him. But do you understand, ultimately, men and women, that if we really believe the Bible, this worldly system is passing away. And so ultimately, knowing how to get around this system is what's rooted in my understanding of wisdom, I've missed the boat. Because what Paul is saying to us is, is that wisdom is rooted in knowing and understanding Christ and His ministry. That's where wisdom rests. And that's why you can find some dear sweet saint who might hardly be able to read but they know Jesus inside and out. In fact, sometimes those people shame us in how much they know and love and are committed to Jesus. Because they may be simple when it comes to a lot of the sophistication of the world. They may not know how to swirl their iPod around. They may not understand how to get on the Internet. They may not know a whole lot of things which help us navigate the system in this world. But they know what matters most. They know Jesus. And we do well not to despise them. 
See, again, being wise. Who do I go to to hear wisdom which lasts and permeates through this evil world? I go to those who know Jesus and seem to know Him well, at least better than I do. So, the next thing I want us to look at then is how can we demonstrate that wisdom? How do we demonstrate it? Well, that's what Paul then begins to unpack here in the next few verses of chapter 5. So we have that first section there in in verse 15. Look carefully at how you walk, not as unwise as wise. Then he makes this statement, making the best use of the time because the days are evil. And what Paul's really getting at there is that term he's using in, in the Greek, which they translated, making the best use of time. What Paul's really saying is this. The, way, the word actually comes from the marketplace that would have been going on during Roman times. And what it actually means is to buy back the time. To redeem the time. Now think about what he's saying to people. Think about what he's suggesting to them. It's kind of like what Joel promised, that all the years the locusts had eaten, God would give back. He would redeem back the time. And so what Paul is saying here is, men and women, boys and girls, you may have lived in a sinful way, in an evil way. You may have walked in darkness at one time, but you now are light. You may have felt very unloved, but now you are loved. You may have thought, I'm not a part of a people. But now you are, what God said, a people connected together. And he's saying, redeem the time you have now. Psalm 90 that Moses writes, and I had the privilege of reading that to play the other evening in the hospital, it once again struck me again, and it really made me realize how much this passage is rooted in that kind of idea. Teach us to number our days. Because our days are few. But 70, maybe 80. And some of us have even clicked 90. Praise the Lord. But the point is, is that we're to redeem the days we have. So do you see how Paul's saying this? He's saying, don't go do stupid, foolish stuff. Don't waste your time. Time is of the essence. You have such a little bit of it. What you need to do is not go back and do all that foolish stuff you were doing, but live now redeeming the time you have. Take hold of it and say, how does knowing Christ and knowing what He's done for me then compel me to think about my time? What am I doing with it? How am I operating with my time? What do I do? How do I use it? Am I being wasteful? The sense that Paul has here in some ways, and we can't deny this, is directly related to witnessing. Now, I don't want to turn this into a beat people of the brow and say, by golly, you ought to be out telling people about Jesus. So I don't want to beat us over the brow about that. But I do want to say that somehow, if we really believe that God is in the business of building up the church... That we agree with Isaac Watts that we wish that all the elect were gathered in. Guess who has to go out and tell to see the elect gathered in? Us. So clearly part of what Paul is speaking to here is, is that we need to be redeeming, being wise about the use of our time. And are we actually caring about the lost? Are we caring about our brothers and sisters who have not yet heard? Are we concerned about that one lost lamb? 
somehow that has to focus in on our attention that if we would walk wisely, then witnessing and seeing people come to faith in Christ has to be at the root of that. Because part of why I do the things I do has to be not so much rooted in making sure that I'm being a good little boy or girl, but rooted in my care for other people, my serving of other people, my willingness to say, I will go down to the marketplace and try to buy back the years I may have wasted. And I don't know about you, men and women, but I've got years that I know for a fact I wasted. My children are starting to get to the age where they're asking questions about things I did in high school and college. And you know, one of the things I realized as I was thinking about the other day, to my shame, there are actually days I don't remember. I don't remember. I was doing so much stupid stuff, I don't remember. Literally. I would wake up, I would do my stuff on this day, and it'd be two days later when I finally come back to my senses. You how grievous that is, men and women? So what Paul's saying is, to people like that, to people like me, redeem the time. Don't go back to doing stupid stuff like that. Don't go back to being a person who wastes your Savior's time. Okay, that's the first thing I want us to see that he is getting into. The second thing is to be thoughtful or understanding in all that you say and do. And how do we see that? We see that here. Look at what Paul then says. Therefore, do not be foolish, but understand what the will of the Lord is. And that whole idea of do not be foolish, but understand, as I just said, really could be said like this. Be thoughtful or understanding in all that you say and all that you do. So what Paul's saying again is, he's being very serious. Don't waste Jesus' time. Now he's saying, don't be thoughtless with your words and with your deeds. What Paul's idea is here is, in some senses, that what was Jesus like? And one of the things I want to remind you of, and sometimes, you know, the, 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 big, the big spew of, of thought that was given out for quite some time about what would Jesus do. Here's the problem if you really live your whole life by what would Jesus do. Was Jesus ever married? And don't give me the theological answer. I'm saying practically everyday life. No, the answer is no, Jesus was never married. Was Jesus ever a father? No, Jesus was never a father. You see, in those two areas, at least those two, Jesus fails as a good example to us. Not because he's not a good example, but that's not his primary purpose for us. His primary purpose is to see how he lived his life and ultimately to look at the principial reality which drove him. What did Jesus do? Jesus knew the Word of His Father. He knew God's Word. He stuck His nose in the Bible. How do we know that? Because every time He opened His mouth to confront something, He quoted Scripture or had something that was clearly rooted in the Scriptures. The ideas were rooted in Scripture itself. Jesus was a man we know who woke up early to pray. Now, I'm not saying that you ought to aspire to wake up any earlier than you already do. I'm just saying that you ought to at least be characterized. Maybe you're someone who stays up late and prays. That's fine. But we do see that there are things about Jesus that we can lock hold of and say, to be thoughtful in what we say and do is to be people who are thoughtful about God's Word and thoughtful about what we say to Him. That's where it starts. Because if 
a person is really rooted in the Scriptures and really is speaking to their Heavenly Father and listening, chances are they're going to be a person who in general, not flawlessly, but in general, tends to have a different way of thinking and speaking and doing than those who are not. One of the things in counseling people that I often do is ask them, as they're struggling through things, you've been reading God's Word lately? What do you think the answer usually is? That's not rhetorical. What's the answer? No. You've been praying much lately? What's the answer? You've been witnessing much lately? What's the answer? Okay, men and women, I don't know a whole lot of things, but I at least know this. I'm pretty sure that I can stand on solid ground and say that Jesus wants you to read your Bible. Jesus wants you to pray. Jesus wants you to tell other people about it. So if those three things are devoid of your life, it shouldn't shock you that life seems to be just one big whirlwind of foolishness. That's what Paul's trying to say. Don't be thoughtless. Understand what the will of the Lord is. And the Lord there is Christ, but how are you going to find out what Christ wants you to do if you don't know anything about Christ and what He's done? Christ and how He lived. Christ and what He came for. Christ and what He's accomplished for you. How are you going to live wisely if you don't know these things? The answer is you're not. You can't. So we are called not to waste time. We are called not to be thoughtless in what we say and do. And this requires the dreaded words of self-discipline and self-denial. Words we in our culture, hate like the plague. Unless, of course, there's something we really, 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 really want to do. Because the amazing thing is there can be people who just live an absolutely debaucherous lifestyle, but when it comes to running triathlons, they are the most disciplined people you'd ever meet. When it comes to all kinds of things, they discipline and deny themselves, buffet their bodies so that they can compete at a high level, or compete academically, or compete. We do this all the time. What's the kicker? It's because that's what we want to do. We value what we're pursuing in it. The other thing I want us to think about, though, is this. Another part of self-discipline and self-denial for the Christian is not just self-discipline and self-denial for its own sake, but it's rooted directly in the fruit of the Spirit, part of which is self-control. So if the Spirit's desire is to bring us into a place of self-control, then wisdom would say, I want to do the things which help me to be controlled, to not just be all over the place. I think the proverb says something to this effect. An angry man is like an unwalled city. There's no protection. And why are people usually angry? Because they're trying to protect themselves. You see, what I'm trying to get at here is, is that if we don't come equipped with Christ, we're going to be in big trouble. The third question I want us to look at then this morning is, why do we struggle to, to wisely walk or to walk wisely? Here's number one. We struggle with God's will. And there's not a person in this room that doesn't. We struggle with God's will. Why this situation? Why that situation? Why these circumstances? 
why would I have to be this kind of person and not that kind of person? Why couldn't I have born into that family and not this family? Why couldn't I have these experiences and not those experiences? Why couldn't I have gone to this college and not that college? Why didn't I pay more attention? I mean, it goes on and on and on and on and on. We struggle with God's will. The second thing I want us to look at is we don't like suffering. I mean, anybody in this room just say, sign me up for a little more? The truth is, is that we don't like it. We hate it. We don't like suffering. And yet, part of what we're called to as Christians is to deny ourselves and follow Christ. And if we would follow Christ, we are promised this. In this life, you will have an easy way. A primrose path. No, in this life, you will have tribulation. In this life, you will have it. We have a hard time believing Jesus' choices for us are best. Sometimes it's because you look at your spouse and say, I know Jesus was not in his right mind when he, was, when he brought that person to me. And we really mean it. When we end up going to a particular school, we end up in a particular class with a particular teacher, we end up... My kids last year had a very difficult... Uh, student, And I imagine that one of my children was the, another difficult student. But we'll just talk about the other student that they would always come home and talk about how difficult that student was. And I, I finally just said, are you just really just mad because Jesus won't take that person out of your class? Yes, that's what makes me mad. See, now we get to the root of it. See, that was real honesty. We actually had something to talk about then because as long as we keep talking about that person and you and how you don't get along and how do we treat one another nicely and how do we... We can have all kinds of conversations, but the behavior at the end of the day is never going to ultimately change until the heart gets changed. What's really wrong? I don't like what Jesus is doing with my life. He makes me mad. And that is rooted in the fact that we don't really believe that Jesus, and I'm using Jesus in the sense of God as, a, as, as, the, as, as God, we don't really believe Jesus or God is good. Because ultimately when bad things happen and we get angry about them, most of the time it's because we think, we don't think Jesus really knows what he's doing because we don't really think that what he's doing is good for us. How can it be? I'm hurting again. How can that possibly be good? Why would you do that to me again? I thought you were supposed to be the person that loved me. And this is where we live and struggle. And I'm not saying this is every day of your life, and I'm not saying this is always, but this is where men and women, we struggle. This is where the battle really is fought for living wisely. And ultimately what that really is rooted in is we want to have control. That's really the real issue. We are determined and we say in our hearts this. I am determined to never be hurt, messed over, done that way ever again. And I will live my life and dedicate it to that end. That person, that issue, that circumstance will never happen to me again. And do you understand what that does to us? 
it puts us in an adversarial role towards God, towards people, and towards our own best interest. Because it makes us shut other people out. And the thing I want you to understand, men and women, is that if you don't think this is true of how you operate, I really would at least first say you ought to really go back and really look deep and hard at what really is your foundational motivations for things you do, especially in the area of sin. Why did you choose to do this way when you know good and well God tells you to do this? Why? Well, I'm just a sinner. That's a great start for the answer. But, what's, but what is lying beneath that answer? And the real truth here, men and women, is this. We often live our lives not believing that God really protects us, not believing that He really is able to care for us and, and take care of us, and therefore we constantly want to take hold of the reins and control it. Because we don't really believe He's going to do us good. We don't really believe He knows what He's doing. And to whatever degree we live our lives questioning why this happened or why that happened, we are actually living like a fool. Because the wise person knows and understands and has insight into, even if I can't see the full picture, Jesus can. And Jesus always does me good. And the more my life begins to come to a place where I'm willing to admit and confess and say, I don't really believe you, but I desperately need you to save me from my unbelief. I desperately need you to work in me so that I will believe you. It's to the degree that we begin to see Jesus as our Savior. That we begin to understand the truth of the Gospel, and that is that as wicked people who would turn to our own way left to ourselves, and men and women, we believe this. This is our doctrine. This is what Scripture teaches us. Please, nobody in this room, think... Well, no, I mean, I am determined and fixed that no matter what happens, if Jesus for one minute removed His care and kindness towards you, if the Holy Spirit even for a second lifted away from you, you would be so quick to fly right back to all the filth that you came from, it'd make every one of this room's head spin. It is only that we have such a Savior, such a God, who is mighty, to say that we then can say there is a hope despite the circumstances and the way they look today. There is a hope and a future despite what people in the past may have done to hurt me. There is a hope. Why? Because your Savior, men and women, sat in a garden and said, Father, I am struggling to accept your will. If you don't struggle to accept His will, in some ways I would say you're self-righteous and you ought to repent. Because our own Savior, who was perfect and flawless, said, this is heavy upon me and I wish that you'd remove it. But unlike us, He said, not my will, but thy will be done. It's Jesus who endured the beatings and the scourgings and the oppressive speech and to be rejected by his siblings, to be rejected by his own parents at certain points. We see that his parents were thinking, 
I'm not sure what's up with this kid. I think he's lost his marbles. Do you understand that? You have a Savior who understands, has been there, gets it. And that gives you courage to wake up and say, I'll start anew today. Is this the cure that you'll never ever doubt Jesus again? No, but it's the start. Today, you can say, I will trust Him more today than I did when I walked in. I will walk out of here today looking at life circumstances at least a little differently. I'll have a little more hope today than I had yesterday and hopefully more tomorrow. Because I want to be a person transformed, believing in this Savior, who's might to save thoughtless people, time-wasting people, careless people, and to enable them to be thoughtful, careful, stewards who are well-gifted to present Him and His message to a needy and watching people beginning in this room because we need it and we need each other and we'll look at that more next week may god make it so in our midst amen